0: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN, and we have a great conversation running through a lot of different NBA topics, the new faces and new places that we're most excited to see, the general dynamics of the East and West playoff picture, some of the situations that we're keeping an eye on, young teams, teams with something to prove, all of that. Really great conversation brought to you by betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Episode runs just about an hour. Lots of really good stuff in here. I hope you will enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks, for, as always, for having me.
0: I notice, you know, especially because of the this being the longest break in the year, and also with just the nature, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit in other, in other places, about how the All-Star Game in basketball is actually pretty late in the season, that we're not setting up the second half of the season right now. We're setting up the stretch run.
1: Right. I mean, you know, Dan Feldman wrote about this in the the uh, Dunk Don Daily Dunks on Friday as we're recording this. That uh, this is the most games on average that have ever been played in NBA history before the All Star Game, and you know that really it's only a, basically a quarter of the season that's left now. So yeah, it, it does kind of change things. We think of it as the the mid season game, the the halfway point, but we are well beyond that, and uh, really not a lot of time left for some of these new teams to integrate players because I think that's The other element of it is, you know, obviously now the the trade deadline coming before the All-Star break. And especially this year, it feels like, you know, Kyrie played, what, one, maybe two games with Luka Doncic before the break. Kevin Durant obviously hasn't returned and played yet for the Phoenix Suns. So some of these big storylines coming out of the trade deadline are still unfolding.
0: For sure. I think of Milwaukee as another good example of this, where you now, because of the combination of the deadline and the All-Star break, there wasn't really an incentive, we don't even know how ready he would have been, to rush, integrate Jay Crowder. And so instead, Jay Crowder, who hasn't played in an NBA game before the All-Star break, you get that time and you could get that adjustment. And so... We are going to see different iterations. And, you know, like Nate and I did an entire pod on Thursday where a portion of it was just like, who's still hurt? Who's not hurt? You know, those sorts of elements. Because you get—it's actually one of the bigger clarifiers that happens is, you know, sometimes Player X will be out through the All-Star break. But it's like, well, would he have come back earlier in that or is they are they still out? Like, you know, various different players with their maladies. Zion, unfortunately, suffered a re-injury. And that kind of lends itself to the, the I think the, the biggest story that we're going to be looking for over these next two weeks. It's often a sort of thing that I end podcasts with is just what are we going to be watching? And I think it's new faces in new places.
1: Yeah, that's always like the the trade deadline, you know, that period afterwards, it's kind of like you you start the season anew because, you know, there's so much interest in how is this player going to look with their new team? How are they going to be used? How is it going to be different? How is it going to be the same? Whereas I, I will admit that, you know, when we get to mid-January, the NBA viewing can maybe seem a little more monotonous because there's not that degree of mystery about teams.
0: Right, and I think that, I didn't as develop as full an appreciation for this until recently, not only with the trade deadline, but also buyouts largely occurring during the same window too. Technically speaking, players can still be bought out until March 1st and play for their new teams in the playoffs. But we're seeing those movements happen early. So, you know, this is going to be Russell Westbrook on the Clippers, Kevin Love on the Heat, all of those circumstances. So it's not only the trade deadline, guys, especially with some of the injury-related delays for players like Durant, but it's that. And so we're going to see closer in many cases, unfortunately not for the Bucks, to full-strength iterations of these teams coming out of the break, which is extremely exciting.
1: Definitely. The, you mentioned the crowd. I think it's interesting because it does stand in contrast to the the comparison that was kind of natural that I used when he got traded was Andre Iguodala sitting out the the pre-trade deadline portion of the season that he spent with the Memphis Grizzlies and alienated their young players in the process. And you know, I was there for his first game. With the heat, which happened to be in Portland, and it was like the Sunday after the trade deadline, so it's interesting they took a very different approach. Milwaukee, and you know, I guess you have the luxury of doing that when you're on what a 12 game winning streak.
0: Sure, and they, you know, I think it was just the idea of, well, where is he going to fit in, and everything else like that. And the East is a is a fascinating place to start because. I think there's more clarity, depending on how interesting you find the bottom of the playoff picture. I think that there happens to be some separation, preliminarily, we'll see health and everything else. Between like the 10th and 11th spots, depending on what happens with the Bulls, the Pacers lost again, though they were close to the end against the Celtics. And the idea there being like with the success that Washington has had recently, my instinct right now is that we know that uh, that we have a pretty good idea of who the 10 teams that will be competing in the postseason are. But getting that to eight and then, of course, getting out out of the first round in the first round itself are going to be fascinating.
1: Yeah, 538 currently has a three-game separation between Washington's average finish of 40 and 42 in Chicago at 37 and 45. And, you know, not that it was any surprise, but we did learn officially during the break that Lonzo ball is not going to be able to come back and, and help fill some of the needs for Chicago. They will, ha- they do have their own new buyout player in Patrick Beverly and we'll, we'll see how much he helps them. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think there is a little more clarity and it's more about jockeying within those spots. The, the one that looms is potentially, I think the most important would be Philadelphia and Cleveland three versus four and in the, the game that we've already seen coming out of the break Thursday night, the Sixers coming back to beat the Grizzlies, pretty important there because, you know, there was a period of time with the Sixers difficult schedule, the the remaining 20 games that it looked like maybe they, you know, slide down to four, despite the fact that they've got a pretty good cushion on Cleveland in the standings. But, uh, you know, the last night's results have helped give Philadelphia a more comfortable advantage on third there.
0: On that point, generally speaking, this far out, scheduling strength does matter, and especially in some ways, the weaker teams you're playing like, because I think at this point, most teams are still trying, other than if they've already kind of ransacked their roster. Philadelphia, but what you look for are the extremes. Philadelphia has the hardest remaining strength of schedule if you're just factoring an opponent winning percentage. Per Tankathon, it's 53.7% opponents of one of their games. And then, just as coincidence happened after last night's game, because Cleveland faced the Nuggets, Cleveland has the easiest remaining strength of schedule, 47.2%. Now, there's a lot of context, as you know, that is not included within that. But why the three-four matters so much is because of who you face. Now, maybe certain circumstances they, those teams wouldn't want to face. You know, like maybe you rather have the Bucks or the Celtics. Not that we know necessarily who's going to be the one seed or the two seed right now, but it does. It probably gives you a significantly easier first-round matchup as well, preliminarily.
1: I mean, I guess actually that's where maybe it has flipped since the trade deadline. I hadn't really thought about this until I'm looking at it now is, you know, before it was the idea of, well, there's this big five in the East and a separation from them to everyone else. And Brooklyn was part of that group. Now Brooklyn is intriguing as that team is now is, is the group of, uh, you know, highly switchable three and D role players with a, a handful of players at either side of the positional spectrum, uh, no longer, you know, I think I, I think you'd probably rather face them in the the first round than you would Miami. And we're still kind of not sure how those are going to shake out five and six because Brooklyn's you know, spot in fifth is no longer as secure. And then you've got Boston and Milwaukee could flip flop first and second. So I don't know, maybe I, maybe as I look at it, third and fourth, it's too early to say whether it really matters. You might actually rather be in fourth in some ways than third.
0: We may find out in time. The one consideration that I would mention there and Brooklyn does, as we're recording this, have a three-game advantage in the loss column. For teams that are at the higher end, I look at the loss column because you can make up the wins, and then it's the reverse for the bottom. And so what you could see now that Brooklyn isn't as formidable is the team in the five is just the team that's playing the best over this, the last 20 right. some some odd games. And so I don't think that team is going to be as good as the f- full strength version of the nets would have been, but you do still run into that. And there there's the variance with injuries. Maybe a team is playing the best, but they have something else and the incentives. And, and it's also with three, four, you're probably not gaining. You're gaining a theoretically more favorable matchup in the first round. And, potentially in the second, depending on how you feel about the two versus the one, but you're not necessarily gaining more home court series unless there are significant upsets.
1: Well, let's talk about that Boston-Milwaukee situation at the top. Maybe, maybe that's where we should have started. It's interesting because despite the fact that the Bucks are on this 12-game winning streak, again, as we record coming out of the All-Star break, they still haven't come close to catching Boston in point differential. In fact, they're still last among the top four teams in the East in point differential, with Cleveland being the uh, the underachievers in the standings relative to their differential and Milwaukee still pretty massively overachieving should I should we be worried about that or is it just irrelevant because they have played well enough with Chris Middleton healthy
0: it's relevant however that becomes superseded by the players they've had missing you know I so said the the idea basically the record the record overstates how well they've played or or how well they played so far, but you expect them to play better is right. probably. And so and for me, generally speaking, especially if you're consolidating to a playoff rotation, then I have I have belief that the Bucks can be better than they have been so far. And we'll I mean, it was looking like, especially with that win streak, that Milwaukee could could really put a little bit of a charge into Boston. I mean, Boston has a lot of talent. They've also you know had some injuries, though, not nearly to the extent of the Milwaukee Bucks. And so you kind of thought maybe that could shake out. Now, we don't know timing on Giannis. It sounds like he's going to play whenever he's not feeling pain. I'm guessing that's not going to be super long. But considering where Boston, like what they've done and and how good they are, it is going to be hard. It is going to be harder for the Bucks to pass them than I expected going into the break.
1: Definitely, that that changes the equation. I it feels like on Boston that people just kind of because of the fact that they started so strong and you know then had kind of a middling December and have, you know just been going on. They they played well but not as well as they they did at the start. And it's kind of our attention has been distracted elsewhere. It's Denver's rise in the Western Conference standings. It's now the new faces in the Western Conference. You know, can Phoenix be the the favorites there? What's happening with the Clippers? That like Boston is flying. Really Relatively under the radar for a team that has, you know, both the best record and pretty solidly the best point differential in the NBA.
0: It is a weird thing that happens because, like, I mean, sometimes for individual players, I don't know why the name Jeff Teague always sticks in my head. There's this idea that if a player shoots really well in the beginning of the season, you kind of think they're shooting well the whole year. And then because you don't check the numbers every week. In some ways, it's the opposite, like because we're watching teams more frequently and kind of thinking about them in the micro and the macro, where that dominance early, it does fade a little bit. And some of it was, I mean, it was. It, it, I always caution people, it's like, this is the best, so far they've been the this best ever. It's like, well, that's because you had a smaller sample. There's more prone to variance and everything like that. And Boston had this ridiculous first shot half court offense at the very beginning of the season. That toned down. Oh, uh, whoop de doo they're still second in the league in offense overall. And... For Boston, I think the other part, yes, they added Malcolm Brogdon. That makes things different. Is we largely know what they are. We largely know what the sales pitch and oh. and that undersells the improvement that players like Jalen Brown ha- or sorry Jason Tatum have made. Jalen Brown's had some improvements too. Still, the theory of the case for the Celtics to me is basically the same, and they won the Eastern Conference last year and had a reasonable shot of winning the finals. Of course,
1: the the disrespect to Mike Muscala has been noted and it is not appreciated. I mean, I, in fairness, the Celtics are or still the you know Vegas championship favorites at this point, it just feels like relatively the conversation has moved away from them in recent weeks, and and maybe that's just a case of us paying attention to whatever you know kind of the new thing is, the new toy is, as opposed to uh, our old familiar favorite.
0: I'll throw you a question that came up in actually a dunked on Prime Discord recently. I think it was in the last chat I did, talking about so talking about the teams in the West and championship odds and all that. And what I was saying is. I think the West overall, the strength is a little bit underappreciated in part because some of these teams have been so injured. But my expectation right now is that the NBA champion will come out of the East. And what makes this hard is that the West is going to be a bloodbath and whatever team makes it out will be playing really well at that time. But I think knowing what I know right now, I fully expect to be convinced otherwise by June. But I think I'd pick knowing what we know right now, I'd pick the Celtics or the Bucks in a series, a final series against whoever comes out of the West. Do you agree with that concept?
1: I do. It, it's interesting. So again, the odds have the East is like a tiny favorite over the West. I, I'm, you know, adding up the totals on 5:38 and on championship odds, and that seems to have it almost exactly 50-50. I mean, the one thing about this is because of the fact that the West is probably somewhat deeper than the East. Whoever emerges out of that will have had a pretty impressive playoff run, you know, accepting injuries that make that that run easier than it looks right now, which I. I guess we probably can accept at this point in in uh, NBA history. So from that standpoint, you know, again, if Phoenix crushes Denver in the conference finals, let's say, then maybe the situation looks a lot different. But right now, I do tend to agree that I I still think the the two strongest bets to win the favor, the title the the two teams in a tier by themselves are Boston and Milwaukee because of the fact that a they are you know two of the three best teams right now, and b we've seen them both do it at a high level in the postseason in the box when they won the title two years ago in the Celtics and making it to the finals last year
0: I agree with that I posited a very similar idea I also am concerned I mean various you know whoever makes it out of that Western Conference is going to be nasty but there is a part of me that's like that is just thinking are you going to feel really stupid that you were underappreciating Denver because when they've had their best guys available they've been great Jokic is unbelievable they still have some of that though I mean they, they were you know you could argue and I believe that was 2020 when they acquired Aaron Gordon was that twenty? One, where they were like the best team in the league for six games and then Jamal Murray got hurt. Yep, 21. 21. And so there's a part of me that thinks that, but the larger element is just, They have some really good defenders, and I think this is their best roster and best constructed, balanced, all that stuff. I think Malone has done a very nice job this year. The questions about whether they can defend the best teams are still present. And Denver, they haven't made an NBA Finals. They have made a Conference Finals. They could have theoretically even made a second one during Jokic's tenure. They've still, like, even in some of those series that they've won, they've had some shaky defensive performances too, and I think it's so weird to parallel them with Cleveland because Denver has had more success in this iteration than the Cavs had, because the Cavs this iteration is basically just new. But the idea that I I'll believe it when I see it, and I distinctly could see it, but I still I'm not all the way there yet. Fair or unfair? Yeah, to me
1: it's more like, and it's weird because I don't think the Nuggets have underachieved in the playoffs. I mean, certainly the the 2020 run was significantly overachieving in the playoffs. But to me, the comparison is more of a team like, you know, Toronto during the, you know, the, the late 2010s where it's like, it, it doesn't matter how good a regular season you have. I need to see you do it in the playoffs to, to fully buy in. And I, I'm accepting with that that I'm kind of in the same boat as you on the Nuggets, and that we might go down with this ship. Like, it, of course, they might, they might blow through the Western Conference playoffs, and it's like, yeah, obviously they were the best team. They had the best record in the West by I think currently five games, maybe five and a half. Now, uh, you know, they they have the the two time MVP. Uh, they they've you know experienced more playoff success than a lot of the teams that are at the top of the Western Conference standings. With Phoenix is is maybe the exception to that. That in hindsight, maybe it should have been obvious that they were going to make it all along. But I still feel the same way that even though we've seen pieces here and there, it, 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 Zach Low has liked to bring up of them employing different defensive strategies and you know being a little more creative to take Nikola Nikola Jokic out of the pick and roll. I I still like when we get to the very highest levels of competition, which hopefully we'll be able to get to in this year's Western Conference playoffs. Hopefully, health will permit that then I think those those weaknesses might be magnified in a way that they just aren't going to be over the 82 game regular season. And then the other element with Denver is like so much of their success is it always is is driven by playing really well at home, 27 and four at home basically a 500 team on the road it does feel like there's some degree to which that doesn't entirely translate to the postseason
0: i believe i saw something years ago that the two teams that have persistent home court advantages kind of irrespective of their quality year to year are the denver nuggets and the utah jazz the two teams that play at highest elevations and it makes sense that that would tone down because in part you're other than the very end of a series you're not playing their you're never playing there on the tail end of a back-to-back, and you're often playing two games, so you have more time to acclimate and everything else. So it, make, it, it makes intuitive sense that that home court would be less extreme. And Denver also, like as great as they are offensively, they've done a great job against great teams. They haven't fully solved the non-Jokic minutes, even though they've gotten better, and those minutes will hopefully be very few in the playoffs. What one of the things that gives me pause, and I thought this might be a worthwhile exercise for us is just as much as I think a lot of these Western conference teams deserve respect, and i mean you could you can argue some of it the I don't think there's a team out there in some part because of the defensive deficiencies of some of these squads that is just an obvious like oh if they put it together they're kryptonite for any good team like you know that the I, i'm not talking about like the absolute best case i'm talking about like the reasonable best case scenarios for some of these teams
1: i still think phoenix can be that team i mean i yeah, they don't have necessarily that one wing defender, but they also don't have you know a lot of terrible defenders. We'll see how much Chris Paul's just height at this age is a weakness for him in the playoffs. You know, teams have started to hunt him in a way that would have been unimaginable when you think back to when Chris Paul defended Kevin Durant as like the primary defender back in that Clippers Thunder series, whatever, whatever year that was. So I. I think I'm higher on the realistic best case scenario for the Suns, although I'm granting that there, there are many reasons health primary among them that they, but we might not see that group this year.
0: There's also the question about, like, so I've thought a lot about a Memphis-Denver series, and I have this distinct feeling right now that if that's the Western Conference Finals, we'll have a very clear idea within two games, but I'm not exactly sure which idea is going to take hold. And so, like, for for that series, it's, you know, how are they going to contain John Morant? Desmond Bain could end up being a big difference maker. But also, Jokic has generally, as I recall it, done very well against Steven Adams in his career, and this collection of Grizzlies bigs that are very good, and I think think are you know can can fill a lot of gaps Jokic creates more gaps than they fill most of the time and so how those two teams square up should it end up getting there and I mean it's it's another real challenge to kind of assess
1: front of the pot David Locke told me last night to look up Memphis's like net rating by quarter which is not something I had done until just now and it is pretty ghastly for the fourth quarter they are minus 5.9 in the fourth quarter, the only
0: had, two teams had, a, had a rough one Thursday. I sure did. The only
1: two teams they are ahead of are the Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs. That is wild. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a split like that for a good team.
0: That's stunning.
1: Denver is also negative in the fourth quarter, although that one makes a lot more sense because obviously Jokic, you know, typically plays the entire first and third and is resting a good portion of the fourth quarter. So I, I don't know if that's as indicative of a weakness for them, but I, I I having just learned of this information, I'm not yet sure how to process it.
0: If we're narrowing it just to clutch situations, so that means um, you know, within five points within the last five minutes, Memphis, negative twelve point eight net rating. Only seventy three clutch minutes. I believe that's the fewest in the league. Yes, it is. That is the fewest in the league. San Antonio is actually second in that stat. You can, <laughs> that explains the two ways that you cannot have a lot of clutch time. And they're thirteen and twelve in those games, which is not fantastic for, especially for a team this good. Though you know, you, being significantly under. And and the reasoning, if you want to kind of work through it, is they're twentieth in offense, but. Fascinatingly, they're twenty sixth in defense during that time. I would, I, I don't think the splits with with and without Jaron Jackson available like we're we're already cutting it pretty thin here. We're talking seventy three minutes, but that is that is really striking. I hadn't really fully thought about that. And for for reference, the next. Team that I think is has real championship equity, unless you want to count the Sacramento Kings on that, like let's say clutch defensive wow. rating.
1: You're, you're going to get the tweets from Sacramento. Oh, now. I
0: always get the tweets from Sacramento. <laughs> is Phoenix? Phoenix is 22nd, 114.5 uh, in uh clutch clutch defensive rating.
1: Yeah, and then Denver is at. Uh, it's amusing that it's Phoenix, by the way, given their dominance in that stat last season. Right. Like, Denver is at the other extreme uh at, at plus 22 in net rating in clutch situations. I mean, I think the one thing you worry about a lot is the way that NBA stats defines it. You know, oftentimes a lot of what you're a lot of the possessions you're counting are kind of meaningless possessions, like it's I'm fouling to get the ball back or, you know, I'm trying to score down five with 30 seconds left that may not really reflect the actual kind of ability in those situations. That's one of the things I'd like to do is put together my my play-by-play data to the point where I can kind of parse out those situations and only talk about, like, here are the legitimate possessions in clutch situations. And then the other element, of course, is you're just getting down to a, a tiny sample size. So, surprisingly, opponent three-point percentage is not a big part of that. It doesn't look like, unless the opponents are hitting 35% against Memphis clutch situations, which is 23rd, 36% against Phoenix, which is 24th, but it's not like off the charts numbers like atlanta is giving up 42 percent somehow in clutch situations which will affect those ratings pretty significantly
0: if you narrow the requirements to within three points three points or fewer the margin and three minutes or less on the time memphis drops to a it's only 34 minutes they drop to a negative 30 net rating <sighs> which is second worst in the league behind the atlanta Hawks, ahead of the atlanta hawks only um so it's, you, you see, and it's funny, there are actually a lot of good teams in that range. And as Seth Partnow brings up, there are a lot of different ways that you can get into those circumstances. But if it's within three, that's kind of one of the things I like about narrowing it every once in a while. It's like it's it's harder to get those like you dip in for a second and then are back out. Like if a game is within three within right. the final three minutes, it was probably competitive at some point towards the end.
1: Yeah, it's definitely competitive. It's just those like kind of fake possessions that, that right. concern me. There.
0: Oh, and, and I love that you brought up that point, though, overall, because when you're already cutting the – cutting the slices so thin the the elements that compose that remaining slice could end up be like variability small randomness could end up playing just a huge part of it
1: exactly yeah the This is one of kind of, I think, the persistent tensions in statistical analysis is that people really like the idea that the sample is the most representative it possibly can be. So, you know, let's look at how teams performed against playoff teams as opposed to against all teams or something like that. And in general, what you find working with the data is the larger sample is actually usually still a better predictor than getting rid of data to make it more representative.
0: Especially because there are all these other factors that can be in play... For you know, as you narrow it down, maybe one of the games you played against a team over five hundred, the player who drives their success wasn't available, and so then all of a sudden that gets in. There. And that was something I've pushed at various moments of time. And I think um, I think Darko, the people who do Darko, are doing this of like player availability adjusted net rating, where it's just like so if, if this person who makes that team good was unavailable in that specific game, and it it all comes back to this idea of context. And it's like what we're trying to figure out here is what is what is relevant, what isn't, and that, you know, like, it's so challenging in this year's West to figure out, because in part because of some of the context situations that have been there. Like, the Clippers are a fantastic team to talk about with this, where it's like, well, what is this team? And in part, it's because even when their players have been available, the sample's still a little bit weird. Or like the Warriors. I mean, the Warriors, part of the story is that, especially Steph Curry, hasn't been as hasn't been around as much as, as they would like. But also, they've been, generally speaking, if memory serves, worse when he's been on the floor than he would like, to.
1: Well, it's the the starting lineup has still been so strong. And that's it feels like what kind of the the Warriors believers are hanging on to. And I've been kind of surprised after the the trade deadline, how many people are still picking the Warriors to win the West. Like I get it from the standpoint of we just talked about, you know, with the the Nuggets and and some other West teams that it's like, I want to actually see it happen in the playoffs before I believe it can happen. And we've all seen it happen with the Warriors. We've seen it repeatedly. We've seen it as recently as last year with a similar cast to this. And even more similar one, uh, uh, assuming that they get Gary Payton the second back in time for the postseason. And yet, like last night's loss dropped them to 10th in the West. I, I At some point, this run has got to come. Like this run that we all keep expecting them to have has got to come, come, and they're running out of runway for it because I, Again, speaking in terms of I got to see it before I can believe it, someone coming all the way through the play in, I think that scenario is just wildly overrated that it's one of those things you talk yourself into like no one's going to want to face them. They're a scary team on paper. And it's like, yes, that's true. But at some point, the number of games, the difficulty, the fact that you probably dealt with some injuries, and that's why you got stuck in the plane, whether you're the Warriors or, you know, if it's this year's Lakers, the 2021 Lakers were a great example of this. Eventually, I think that's probably going to catch up with you and and probably sooner rather than later.
0: This could be the anomalous year, but my general thought has been there are a number of teams that I... That could be six seed or worse. That I could see winning a series, but seeing them winning the whole conference would be stunning because it, exactly. it doesn't happen very often for a reason. And it could very well be that there are some of those big upsets early. People are like, oh, look, it's wide open, it's the wild west, and all that type of stuff, and then things normalize within it. And that, I mean, one uh, a couple pieces of context on that from the Warriors front. Right now, Golden State, so last year, 10.6, cleaning the glass, plus 10.6, cleaning the glass net rating when Steph Curry was on the floor. This year, plus 6.3. And they're 20 and 18 in games when Steph Curry plays. Like, that is below the standard, and that's not because Steph Curry has been bad. Far from it. But the team overall hasn't quite been there, and there have been other injuries, but like, that that 28, 2018 isn't good enough for them to sustain all of all of these different levels and as you brought up like there have been times where it feels like oh the run the run might be coming now and then they just like have a complete dud out there and it's it's hard i'm picking them to win the west i think is very ambitious Picking them to win an, an individual series i i firmly believe that styles makes fights and and all of that and that's why it's going to be so fascinating to see where this shakes out like in terms of where teams end up because like i mean sacramento it's a wonderful success story i their offense is going to give everybody challenges they are crushing bad teams in part because of that and that mike brown savona everybody deserves a ton of credit for that i'm still skeptical of them as a playoff team but if they're like the three if they hang on there if they're the four a that puts them in much better position to win a series we don't know who they'd be facing and everything else but also that means that a team let's say the Clippers or the Warriors, presumably is coming from behind more, and that is going to be a different challenge.
1: I mean, it feels like the, there's going to be just such urgency to, to get that sixth seed from the standpoint of number one, if Sacramento stays three, uh, because number one, you stay out of the play, and obviously, which everyone is going to want to do have that time off and just not have the risk of falling all the way out. And then two, also the opportunity to play Sacramento in the first round is opposed to getting Denver or Memphis, presumably. Like that's a, that's a pretty wide gap. And I feel like, that I don't know what the record is for like w- the number of you know the pre-series predictions favoring the team without home court advantage in a 3-6 matchup but I feel like it is it is in strong jeopardy if Sacramento stays there with all due respect to the Kings.
0: It would be the equivalent of that 5-12 in the NCAA tournament that it seems like everybody picks and those actually cash out fairly frequently. So I don't I don't know the exact numbers on that. Plenty more to discuss with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from betonline.ag. Bet online remains your number one source for all your sports betting this season. Everything from pro and college basketball, UFC, MMA, NHL, and more. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, game trends at Bet Online. With live betting options, free contests, and live scores for almost any sport or game imaginable, Bet Online is truly the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite leagues and events. So head to the website today, or use your mobile device. And use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Again, make sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your rewards at betonline.ag where the game starts. Who so? Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the Suns here. Let's do like a reasonable best case scenario. Not, I'm not asking you to get into the statistical analysis. This is going to be more. This is going to be more about your feel on it. Let's exclude the Nuggets, the Grizzlies, and the Suns in part because we've talked about the other. Th- we've talked about them. Realistic best case. So not hundredth percentile outcome. Let's say ninetieth, eighty fifth, something in that range. Who do you think is the most dangerous? You can count seed if you want. However, you want to do it from that point.
1: I I guess it's probably still the Clippers, right? Like.
0: I'm angry with myself, but yeah, I think it is.
1: And, and I already feel tremendous regret for picking the Clippers to win the West coming into the season uh, and, and not going with a a safer bet on that count. But again, you know, we've seen that their small ball lineups can cause teams a lot of problems in the playoffs. I mean, the Westbrook scenario factor is the biggest possible wild card and, and maybe the, the biggest reason aside from the fact that they just haven't been very good this season that I hesitate in saying that. But again, there's a level that they can get to when Kawhi Leonard is, you know, at the top of his game and, and he's looked pretty close to it, I think, for an extended period of time here. So that they're, they're my reluctant pick.
0: They also have different theories of the case, which is very useful. I mean, so the Warriors have the benefit of, like, we know that their theory of the case can work, especially if they can get something out of Iguodala. Andrew Wiggins' absences this year have been definitely unusual for him. So you have those elements working in their favor. And with the Clippers, it's always been... You know, like as as much as we, like Zach Lowe and I agree with him that the the Nets are that like ultimate theoretical team. In some ways, the Clippers are too because they have had a couple of really good series, and they also got beat basically full strength with a different coach against the Nuggets in 2020. And full credit to Denver for winning that. And so yeah, I, but, I then, but
1: now Mason Plumlee on the other side. Yes,
0: yes, and that that has that has swung the full tide. <laughs> And I I wonder, because this comes up a lot in the context of player injuries of just like the passage of time. And so it's like, you know, the Kawhi Leonard that we're going to see right now is not the Kawhi Leonard that we saw before the injury, even if he had never gotten hurt. Like, that's just the way the way aging works, the way the passage of time works. And so I there's a part of me that goes, do they still have that fastball? I'm still, you know, it's kind of that it's the reverse of the believe it when you see it. Sort of element is like I've seen it at least with some of these players individually, and there also is the element I'm looking it up. But when Kawhi Leonard has been on the floor, they have a plus 8.1 net rating that's actually that's actually worse than two years ago, but that's still pretty dang good. And there's a, a big part of me that goes, you do, haven't you, haven't you been, haven't you been down this road and been wrong so many times before? Why are you, why do you think it's going to be different? And I think part of it is also that I don't have as much faith, you know, like, so the Mavs, I think their defensive woes are a version of catastrophic against really, really good teams. I think they're, they're that, you know, wild card, cut the brakes. Like they can beat anybody, but they can also lose to anybody type of team. Like Sacramento, they have some things that i really like but they don't really have the personnel for a team like the clippers and i think the clippers have reasonable personnel for them and like there's there have been versions of the wolves that i've liked better but i think in some ways that is about it's a statement of how i don't trust anybody else more than i think the clippers are amazing
1: exactly you know i hadn't thought about this it's still unlikely i think that probably phoenix will scuttle this somehow but uh we could have another Clippers Mavericks first round series for the third time in four
0: years. Um uh, I really don't want that to happen. In part because <laughs> I wanna see I wanna see well, you got to see Luca a little further last year, but I you know, the, getting new matchups. The other team, even though I think this particularly with zion's hamstring stuff isn't going to be the best iteration of them i think there's a chance that the pelicans put a charge into this and maybe they're more in the especially with these losses in the clippers warriors camp of can beat a lot of teams but probably won't win the whole whole conference this year if they can get this we're moving to the point like if zion's playing defense like he was before they have a lot of functional depth i thought willie green generally did a nice job putting players in positions to succeed i i I th- the losses have really made it harder for me to like pick them in different series, but they could be really feisty and dangerous.
1: I also wonder to what degree it informed their thinking going into the trade deadline. When we did the dunked on mock trade deadline, I had the Pelicans and was definitely you know trying to get into the OG Anunoby conversations and you know trying to and ended up. Dealing for Miles Turner, even though we couldn't make the renegotiate and sign-in trade happen, renegotiate and extend in sign-in-trade, I guess. Uh Uh, I, it makes sense that they would be a little less ambitious now that it looks like they're going to have a hard, hard time getting out of the play in tournament. Uh, so you don't necessarily want to expend some of that draft capital on a season where you're unlikely to have a long run, but yeah, I mean, look, the version of them, we, we barely seen them with Bo Zion and Brandon Ingram healthy. The version that we saw with just Zion was already pretty good. And, uh, they, they could be the proverbial team that you don't want to see coming out of the play in tournament as well.
0: They could be. And even though I have skepticism about how their talent meshes and, you know, where's the ball going to go, how are they going to do it defensively, like, and, you know, where does Valanciunas fit in and Ingram and Zion, so many different things, there are always teams, and there was an iteration of the Brooklyn Nets that looked like this, where it's like, those parts don't matter because they just you just can't stop them in the first place, and so you don't have to worry about it, and they have enough team defenders and everything else, and... That kind of lends itself. You brought up the idea of draft capital. And I think now we're past the trade deadline. One of the key storylines that I'm going to be watching over the next year, so meeting from now until the 2024 trade deadline, is we have this group of teams. Specifically, I'll focus on the Pelicans, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Utah Jazz, who are simultaneously some version of competitive. We'll see where this this jazz post-Connolly stuff ends up and the Thunder, um, some definitely definitely worth watching all of them. All of them, if they want to, could be important bidders in whatever level of player they want to go after, whether that is a Miles Turner or an OG Ananobi or Star X, who ends up hitting the market. And I I think that when you consider some of the high-level talent, particularly for the Thunder with Shea and with the Pelicans with Zion, that sooner rather than later actually makes more sense. And I'm not saying Pelicans are doing a, they're trading five first round picks this this offseason or anything silly like that. But I want people to be prepared for the possibility.
1: So, I mean, I think the other thing that allows you to do is, like, you know, the whole storyline when the Timberwolves made the Go Bear trade was like, wow, they did this trade and they managed to hold on to, like, all their most important players. And it was good for them to, to keep Jaden McDaniels, certainly. But. One thing we learned is, like, actually, no. It turns out, anytime you're matching that much salary, you got to give up some pretty important players, and they have badly missed Malik Beasley this season at the very least. And Vanderbilt. Jerry Vanderbilt, yeah, and even Patrick Beverly, perhaps, although not enough to bring him back in the buyout market. The fact that these teams are so deep and still have the draft picks incoming that might not be involved in a trade like this, I think, makes it easier to make one without that kind of sacrifice. Uh, to me, the time is, is very ripe for Oklahoma City. Do you know where the Thunder rank, even after their loss last night to the Jazz, in point differential in the Western Conference?
0: Right now, I think they're fourth or 5th fourth in the Western Conference in point differential. Well, and—, and- I pulled it, I was talking with, I think it was with Matt Moore on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the Thunder, and I believe at that point, it's. I think it's toned down a little bit since then, they're like something like fifth in the entire league in net ratings since, since December 1st.
1: Is, is Orlando one of the teams ahead of them?
0: I think they might be. <laughs>
1: I don't know specifically. It's just those two are the... And and John Hollinger wrote about this, our buddy at The Athletic, earlier this week, the two teams that are really coming on right now and and project to be even stronger next season. Uh, Orlando doesn't have that kind of... Even though they've got the Chicago pick coming, maybe not that kind of trade draft capital. But uh both in very interesting spots and yeah you've got Oklahoma City sitting here gonna add Chet Holmgren next season if you add one more piece i feel like they very much could get in the mix it could be like the the thunder of the early 2010s how quickly they went from like Oh, yeah, this is a pretty promising team. Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, they just drafted James Harden. Wait a second, they're in the NBA Finals already? I I mean, I think that kind of, I don't know that you should expect that specifically, them making it to the Finals, but that kind of leap is, I think, very much on the table for them. And I think one of the interesting questions they're going to have to answer is like, at some point, does Lou Dort become their version of Dylan Brooks? Like I don't think his shot selection is is questionable as Dylan Brooks, but uh, uh coincidentally these two Canadians that tend to play bigger than their size defensively, since Dord is basically their four most of the time now. Uh I, it could be the same thing where you know he had all this kind of latitude to explore the studio space offensively when they were deeply rebuilding but when you start competing do you start to worry a little more about some of Dort's weaknesses offensively and does that make it more you know important to kind of include him in a deal like this for a guy like Ananobi who would who would be an offensive upgrade in addition to just being you know more naturally sized for that power forward spot
0: the threshold's changing so dramatically for strengths and weaknesses when you get to the high rounds of the playoffs. It's such an adjustment for fans. Like, I think that's one of the one of the more interesting ones as somebody who covers the whole league is, like, you see this, you know, person that you see as the golden child, like, oh, they're doing all this stuff, and then they get into one of those rounds, and a lot of terrible stuff happens, like, defensively or whatever. You go, oh, God, they're they're unplayable do all this stuff. And it can be an issue. And with Oklahoma City, there, I mean, I love that you brought up Dylan Brooks because there is this... Extremely fraught place where this player was essential for you becoming what you are and getting to where you are. Simultaneously, not being quite good enough to be that player when you're going against the best of the best when the standards get higher. And with Dylan Brooks, part of what's so surreal about it is it's an element that isn't essential to his value. It's an element that is directly contrary to that, which is his shot selection and kind of his uh, inability to hold back in some of those circumstances.
1: And like you could still make a case based on I think his RAPM remains quite strong, you know his defensive impact, like all of that. That maybe Dylan Brooks is still that important to the Grizzlies, but boy, just to be that inefficient offensively, it, it becomes a pretty big challenge when you're playing that bigger role.
0: Briefly, because pe- some people are like, oh, why do you always why do you always bag on Dylan Brooks and all those things I'm like okay, since his well, we'll not count his rookie year when actually Dylan Brooks played more minutes than any other rookie in the NBA that year. Um, since then. So that year he had Oh I'll just do all of them These are Dylan Brooks True shooting Some of these samples Are smaller due to injury From his rookie year on 53 50 51 52 52 Current year 48 Yeah And Brooks is not always Horrendous on the Shot diet Like if you're just Narrowing the field To the shots that are what you would consider these kind of the standard for players like him those like catch and shoot jump shots or things like that like those those I think it depends a little bit year to year from what I recall he's been a little bit worse on those this year than his normal standard that's a part of why his efficiency has been so horrible but yeah Dylan Brooks shooting 34% on catch and shoot threes even this year but he's taking 2.1 pull-up threes per game for reasons. Some of that Desmond Bane not being available. That 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 hurts things and it made his shot died a little less helpful. But it's a question in terms of why it, it's so it's so exploitable because if, if you can make life harder on Jai, you can make life harder on Bane, then you're going to make that sacrifice. You're going to live with Dylan Brooks hitting, you know, hitting some of those threes and taking some bad ones.
1: I mean, I think what's probably frustrating about this, and it feels like Grizzlies fans have become especially frustrated with this, is it's not clear why you have to say that sacrifice because like to me when I think about that sacrifice I think about Boston playing Isaiah Thomas in the deep rounds in the playoffs like obviously that's going to limit you defensively because of his size there's nothing he could do about it but he's so good offensively you know in his prime that he made up for it and in Dylan Brooks's case it's not a physical limitation it's a choice basically like obviously there's a, a skill element to a degree but you know it's kind of like this is playing this way is inherently what's gotten me to this point so I have to continue doing it, which actually makes it kind of parallel to the Russell Westbrook conversation.
0: Oh, boy. And the good news for the Clippers is that they do have other places to turn. And Russell Westbrook has not been there so long that you have to You have to ride the train, and so maybe it works maybe i 'm wrong, maybe it will be different for them than it has been for so many teams since Russell Westbrook was the best version of himself on the court. However, almost all other iterations of Russell Westbrook could cause some real real problems for them,
1: yeah, and I think the biggest challenge to me in terms of this like well there 's no downside he 's playing for the minimum is it 's just the time that you 're going to invest in trying to integrate him into the rotation in the lineup during this stretch where hey you're finally healthy you know knock on wood and you've got a relatively light schedule the rest of the way might actually get to have some practices and you've already got three other new guys to to integrate that you added at the trade deadline like you layer the westbrook element on top of it it's it's a lot to work through
0: without a lot of time and as we brought up, if the Clippers can't push all the way up to like the three, the margin for error gets razor thin in each round. And they may have the talent to pull through, but it's a lot to ask of anybody. You, I you know you watch, you watch everyone and we have, you know, probably about 10 minutes that we can go, that we're going to go beyond this. What teams, what players intrigue you the most for this next couple of weeks?
1: I, I thought you were going to point out the running joke in our group chat that whatever the worst game of the night is, that's the one that I happen to be watching.
0: Yeah, whatever game i have on my second tv because i haven't changed it yet is the game that you're watching primarily
1: it's it's nate's league pass avert is the one that i'm watching i mean so besides the players that we've already like the teams and players that we've already talked about i guess well whenever carl anthony towns comes back i think minnesota is going to immediately jump to the pat- top of the league pass rankings in terms of you know how do they reintegrate him uh, the fact that they've managed to hang around five hundred and, and still be at the you know top of the play-in mix right now, like does that mean that when Carl Anthony Towns comes back, they actually can be the kind of top five, top six team in the West that we expected all along? Like that's a that's a really fascinating question we haven't yet touched on.
0: I'm hopeful that the Greater focus on Anthony Edwards, and you could say Edwards and Towns, like just, you know, like how this all interplay works out could end up benefiting them. And I, I think back to last year's playoffs. And for me, the best things that Minnesota was doing offensively against Memphis was when Edwards was running the show. And Mike, Mike Conley is a wonderful player. You can still lean on him, but I think he's more comfortable fitting in where he gets in than D'Angelo Russell was. And they're both flawed defensively. I, and, and with, especially since they can't run the same stuff that they were all last year, like I think Conley can do it reasonably well and you also are probably more comfortable just straight up not playing him if that's the way things go you wish you had some of the functional guard depth and with towns like it sucks that they're gonna have to figure this out over who knows 10 to 15 games before the postseason and then be thrown straight in the fire they don't have a good enough record i do see an avenue especially with edwards playing as well as he has recently for them to push push higher in this and make make actually being competitive in the postseason more viable
1: for sure i i think that's very much on the table like we we haven't talked about them a lot in this podcast yet but again you know, I wouldn't say it's a best case scenario without without Towns in the lineup, but it's I think a positive scenario for them to still be where they are that this injury hasn't sunk them in the standings. Uh, okay, the second one with, that we again haven't talked about, Quinn Snyder hasn't been hired in Atlanta as we record this, but all signs seem to be pointing towards Quinn Snyder taking over as the next coach of the Hawks and that's a pretty extreme change in philosophy in terms of the value of the three-point shot relative to long twos. Uh it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of immediate changes that that has
0: we love to think about the significance of a coach and i mean there are various examples i mean you go the more extreme like the change from mark jackson to steve kerr and some of the ones but like an in-season shift that like we could see here is not unprecedented but pretty close and i i would be very intrigued by how how much we see Quinn Snyder's fingerprints if that is what ends up happening. I'll throw two other teams out there. Um, we've mentioned both of them, but I think it bears further emphasis. One of them is the Cleveland Cavaliers. And there will be a believe it when I see it element to this because a lot of these players have just not been in that circumstance, most notably Evan Mobley and Darius Garland. Like that, it is unfortunate that their fall at the end of last year kind of prevented us from seeing some of that because they were so good a lot of last year. And so... What is the theory of the team? Can this two-headed offensive monster, two-headed defensive monster, work well? And presumably, they're going to play some good teams. Like that, I think that's going to happen here. So they're one, and then the other one, and this is you know one of my compunctions is the Orlando Magic because you beat me to it. They're you brought up that they've been really competitive over this stretch. I think they're still going to be trying now. I. I had this theory a long time ago, that they, like about a month ago, that they were closer to the bottom of the play-in mix than they were to the bottom of the East. That is already kind of coming closer to fruition because of the success that they've had recently. We'll see if that actually affects their draft seeding or if they can massage things a little bit, but it's more this question of, we know that there will be continued internal improvement from guys like Paolo Bencaro and Franz Wagner and hopefully Wendell Carter as well. It becomes, are they already good or what do they need to become that next level? because it's looking more like this year, whether we're talking about cap space or we're talking about their draft pick, is probably their last great shot to add a second or third best player on this iteration of the Magic.
1: And I think the the player you didn't hit on that is really crucial in that is Markel Fultz. For sure. And as well as he's playing, like, do you need Fred Van Vliet? I I happened to like, after the fact, go back and on Synergy watch the uh, Orlando-Toronto game from the week before the break. <laughs> and I, I'm sure this wasn't actually a factor, but there was very much a vibe of like, like Markel Fultz and Jalen Suggs are both playing great against Fred Van Vliet like this is very amusing given all the talk that the Magic are ready to make a big offer to Van Vliet this summer like maybe they don't need him now maybe they can coexist because I mean part of the beauty of Markel Fultz is like he's he's got such great size at, at six six at the point guard that like you put him on point on his opposing number and he provides you the value that a lot of teams derive from hiding a point guard somewhere else and putting their wing on a point guard so you know that's 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 part of the the value that Markel Fultz is bringing to the table and it potentially allows him to play off fan fleet. But that's that's to me a big one to watch. And then also, what is Jonathan Isaac? Because like he does not seem to have lost much athletically despite being off the court for nearly two and a half years or, or no, I guess. It was three three full years almost, right? Three full years. Because so, of the
0: timing of the injury, I believe you're right.
1: Or he had played like one or two games because he, he got hurt again in the bubble, but had, was just coming back from the injury and start, suffered at the start of 2020. Now that I get that straight in my head. But his like, steal and block rates are still
0: through the roof. The other one I'll add, they've come up in passing a couple times to the Sacramento Kings. Like, I, I love I love watching them play. And it's funny people because I like, didn't have Simonis in my first group as an All-Star. It's like, hey, do you? no, I watch the Kings a lot. I enjoy watching them play. Will they be able to piece some of this together? And no matter what, this is great to build on moving forward. Thankfully, other than Harrison Barnes, pretty much all their principals are under contract. So we will get to see this team for another period of time, but they're going to get Hopefully the reps that Cleveland didn't last year. And I'm not comparing them in terms of their long-term potential. I'm a bigger believer in what Cleveland has going than what Sacramento has. But can they put some of this together? Are we seeing enough from De'Aaron Fox, from Sabonis, from Keegan Murray to be like, okay, they'll be they'll be in the conversation moving forward.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean this is this is an opportunity for the Kings. I think they've got to really kind of maximize it because, you know, things have broken pretty well for them in terms of the health elsewhere in the Western Conference. And their own health knock on wood where they've, you know, generally been able to run out there starting five pretty much every single game. I will say I I was disappointed. Like, I I don't think it made sense for Sacramento to make a big trade at the deadline, given where they are in the standings, because I still think they're early in their run rather than, you know, at the culmination of it. But uh, I I did think there was an opportunity for them to upgrade the backup center spot to to maybe, you know, they did add Kessler and Edwards, but add a, a wing defender who has a chance to be part of their rotation. And as uh, uh, is, is I was unable to in the mock trade deadline, they did they did not make that move.
0: Broadly speaking, I think it's better for teams to be proactive and understand the, the thresholds. And it's a lot to ask, especially if a team hasn't been there before. And I, I mean, I had similar frustrations with Cleveland and the idea that they needed to do they needed, doing something was better, especially for them with the Karis Levert contract looming over things, because it's it's thornier for them to add that player whoever that is later they are pretty asset poor but yeah with sacramento you have some pieces that are extremely exciting and they you hope that they're going to be on the roster for a long time but you want to assess that and and put the right things around them to maximize your your chances even if this isn't the only shot you're going to have
1: exactly yeah i'm i'm less convinced with cleveland in that look obviously they didn't eventually have enough to get in the josh hart conversation since he went for a first and if it wasn't josh hart i'm not sure who they could have gotten who would have been a clear upgrade on carisle Overt.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way but I think you make a good point point. and I don't know I get frustrated watching them was I had it I had it on a second screen for a little less than the last night but that was more my frustration with the Pelicans than it was the the Raptors I'm still kind of reeling is overstating things but I'm still kind of grappling with their decisions at the All-Star break. has looked very good there. Extreme. I, I, I'm happy with that. And and some of the offensive stuff has been better. He's been passing the ball, all that.
1: Yeah, has been very noticeable, yep.
0: I still... I'm still wondering what the theory of the case is there. Is it we're better than we've been? We're going to bring this group back? Is it we don't know who we're going to bring back? And so, like, I mean... I I I want some any semblance of signal from the Raptors moving forward because like I mean I did a whole pod with Eric Kareen about this I it's not that I can't figure them out from a like who they have and are they good it's the direction and the motivation that are harder to parse
1: yeah I I think it's like you know them to some degree looking at the underlying numbers that you know they've they've been you know, relatively unlucky in terms of their own shooting, that they've played better than their point differential is better than their record. You add those two things up. I think there's a solid case that, you know, they could be as high as the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference right now. I mean, maybe the fifth. Yeah. I, I mean, New York isn't like leaps and bounds better than them. So they could be the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference right now. And then you hope that if you bring this back and go into next season, you know, James Harden signs in Houston something else happens and lo and behold we're right in the mix to not only win a playoff series but maybe two.
0: Masai's been right before I wonder how it's going to go and then the other variable there which they're going to have to deal with very soon is not only do you have to deal with what these players choose to do and so Fred VanVleet, Gary Trent Jr., a year later O.G. Ananobi can choose to take their talents elsewhere and presume like depending on the offers and everything else. It's also the ramifications, and I mean, just as a CBA cap nerd, Masai Ujiri's negotiating by basically getting players at a lower annual value, as, as I would interpret it based on the contracts they signed. Lower annual value in exchange for a player option is a really notable gambit because you're it allows you to put kind of more talent together in the short term but it also puts free agency earlier and that either means that the players are getting higher price tags or they're getting out and it might work like we 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 will get more clear information on what on that concept now than we have had before but i really want to see how it works out
1: and i think the the key to that strategy is you have to actually get the lower price point like with Ananobi, I feel like pretty confidently you can feel like they that was a great value for them. Gary Trent Jr. What I didn't like about that contract is it seemed like market value for him at the time. Plus, he got the player option after two years. I thought that was a great contract from Trent's standpoint. That you know, Clutch, which also has been I think pretty you know aggressive about demanding player options in their players' contracts, negotiated for him.
0: Anything else that's sticking out to you that you're going to be tracking whether it's rest of the year, or next couple of weeks?
1: I think we pretty much covered it here.
0: I think for me the last thing I'll mention is sorting out the bottom of the west. And we're dealing, you know, we talked about how at the very beginning of this podcast, how there's not that much left. It's a little over 20 games for each team. And is it going to be 13 squads pushing to the finish line for the last three weeks? Is it going to be more like 11 or 12? Who falls out and why? Um, because the why might be you're not good enough. Like for especially if the Blazers, like if, if, if you know, Simons is missing time, if Nurk ends up missing more, more time as well, like that could end up being a factor here. Or is it that you had an injury and and these teams are all putting heat on everyone else? And so surprising teams not only miss out on the play-in, but also are just in much tougher position.
1: It also might be there's a blizzard in Portland, so you get stuck on the runway overnight, basically, and yeah. aren't able to land until three hours before the game.
0: For sure. Ugh. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure, my friend.
1: Likewise, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his excellent work at ESPN, does both NBA and WNBA, does some really good work there. I am, as always, completely impressed with his bandwidth, the hardest working person in NBA media, in my humble opinion. And that means you can also listen to him on various ESPN platforms. I always love to see and hear him there. You can also listen to the fabulous Pelton cast, the podcast that he does. And if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter at KPelton, K-P-E-L. T O N love having him on. And the stretch run being so close is just striking this year. And so many teams that were still figuring all this stuff out. And that means there's a lot more to do, a lot more to see, but it's a lot of fun too. And I mean I got so excited, I was watching games on Thursday, just like, oh, figuring figuring all this stuff out. That in particular that Cavs Denver game was fascinating. I thought Mobley looked really good, but also, you know, lots of fun throughout the Thunder Jazz game also stood out. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode. That really is useful for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability, my guest's availability. So you can't get in a habit. So if you subscribe and download, you don't have to. It'll do it for you. Whatever podcast player you use, really do appreciate that. You can also help other people find the show, word of mouth, rating and review in podcast player, social media, however you want to do that, help other people find the show. We appreciate it. But the single most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to give yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That should be the main reason you do it. Ancillary reason. It tells them that you came from us, and hopefully you will continue to advertise on this podcast. You can also check out my other work. Now that our vacation is done, Nate and I are going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime 15 and 60. will be back on Sunday. We're figuring out how we're going to handle that with the teams that we want to cover in a short week, but we're working through that. Also, of course, doing gamers and doing news and and everything else, and also the great content. Pelton mentioned that Dan Feldman is doing the Daily Dunks, which is great, and Seth Partnow is doing Nerd Notches, and then also the podcast that Nate does with John Hollinger. We're also coming back with a vengeance on the NBA strategy stream. We are doing two games in the next few days. We're going to be broadcasting on Saturday. Indiana Pacers Orlando Magic that is a seven eastern four pacific start then next week we're doing Tuesday and Friday Tuesday Sacramento at Oklahoma City that's an eight eastern five pacific start and then Knicks Heat we're doing that on Friday that's gonna be we don't usually do Friday broadcasts, but we're gonna do that one eight eastern five pacific so you can check all those out you can also ask questions honestly you can ask them now using the hashtag NBA strategy stream we get to those live on air I was just doing some of my prep for the Indiana Orlando game before recording with with kp also written work at the athletic i have my team by team breakdown and i have a couple other things in process now i was actually thinking during my time off about how i want to order these and i'll talk to editorial as well so hopefully i'll get moving on that in the next couple days depending on when i have time to write Going to be watching a whole lot of basketball games and if you have any feedback good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it that is an absolute promise I'm not the greatest at replying, but I try, and but that's why reading it, it's feedback more than anything else. And that is all for now, so thank you so much for listening, take care, and make it a great day.